Hello, this is Emerson Fittipaldi. You are listening to Beyond the Grid. Hi everyone, it's TC here with another episode of Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35.2 wireless headphones. What have we got for you this week? Well, it's another multiple world champion and someone who's regarded as a founding father of Formula One in Brazil. He was the first Brazilian driver to win a Grand Prix and the first Brazilian world champion. And in so doing, he blazed a trail that was followed by the likes of Nelson Piquet and Ayrton Senna to name but two. I'm talking, of course, about the great Emerson Fittipaldi. We caught up over the Brazilian Grand Prix weekend at Interlagos, where he was one of the star attractions. Everywhere he went, people stopped him for autographs and selfies, and he spent a lot of time catching up with old friends in the pit lane. After all, it was at this circuit in 1973 that he won the first ever Brazilian Grand Prix. Believe it or not, Emo is now 71 but he's still as enthusiastic about motor racing as ever, and he regaled me with stories about moving to England in 1969, racing for Lotus, McLaren and Copasuka in Formula One, and helping to steer Ayrton Senna's career. It was an illuminating and at times very emotional conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Emerson, welcome to beyond the grid thank you for your time um now it was a phenomenal formula one career 144 starts 14 wins two championships how do you reflect on it all now you know it's uh, always great to be talking to you i think it's so much a history motor racing grand prix racing formula one um you know everything starts when I was driving Snetterton and Colin Chapman started looking, who is this young Brazilian driver driving a Lotus Formula 3 car for Jim Russell and doing well. And then I had a telephone call from Colin, the end of, after winning the, the Formula 3 championship and say, Emerson, I want you to drive, this is too soon. Sometimes it's difficult in life to say no, I have to say no to Colin Chapman. Say, I'm not ready, can you wait? for next year, the British Grand Prix in Brands Hatch. I want to do Formula 2 before Formula 1. And uh, my legs were shaking. Was he going to accept? And he said, yes, I wait for you. And that was fantastic. I had the best mentor in motor race that was Colin Chapman. You know, and uh, uh, the four years I drove for Lotus was fantastic years. Was my, the base was the beginning was my route to Grand Prix racing. All the history from Colin Chapman, from Jim Clark, Graham Hill, York and Rins, all the champions, and now I was myself there. It was fantastic. You won your fourth Grand Prix. When were you at your peak? Well, I, I think it was definitely the end of 71, a year later that I won the Grand Prix in Watkins Glen, the US Grand Prix that was getting ready for the 1972 season. And we, we raced a non-championship race in Brands Hatch. Uh, that's difficult circuit, very bumpy, you know, a lot of up and down, uh, different characteristics of corner. And by then the JPS, Lotus 72, was incredible competitive. And then, and then I was really driving the car, what I call it, 110%. And it was a car at that time, at the end of 71, that I talked to him and he talks to me. I just look to the car, he understands what I want. And when I sit down on that car, it was part of my body. And that was, we were ready for 72. So that was the best car you ever drove? In my history of motor race, I drove so many different cars, yes, by far. Uh, chassis number five. <laughs> <laughs> Clive Chapman just rebuilds, and I drove four seasons the same chassis. It's unbelievable to say now that you drove, but was update suspension, update the aerodynamics, the, the accessories around the, sh the chassis, but same chassis. Incredible. That is incredible. Now, if that's the best car, who was the best driver you raced against? You know, in Formula One, 
uh, even being a, a generation before mine was Jack Stewart. Jack was incredible fast. And Jack is one of these drivers that who, he could carry the car on his back. I remember 1973 Brazilian Grand Prix Interlagos, eight kilometers a lap, incredible track. The tiro was not behaving well. And I, I was thinking to myself, this is a good chance you now because Lotus was beautiful. And uh, Jack is still finished third in undrivable car. And that's when I, I respect a lot. I knew Jack's history. He was one of my heroes with Jim Clark before I joined Form Formula One. Sure, from Latin countries, Juan Manuel Fangio, but he was incredible, Jack. And Jack, I dice many times going to the corner and I knew he was going to respect my space, put my space into the limit, but on the correct limit. And he, he was a true champion, fantastic guy. It's interesting. Jackie says that before he became a racing driver, he was a shooter, clay pigeon shooter, and that really helped him with his mind management. What did you do before you became a, a racing driver that you think helped you develop? You know, I started racing Interlagos in motorcycle for two years, then I raced hydroplane boats uh, because that time I was 17 years old, minimum for go-karting in Brazil. Uh, but I think the concentration, the focus in motorcycle, in boating, racing, uh, it helped me a lot for cars. And that was my, what I call the mental school. And you have to be completely focused on what you're doing. I always say when you leave the pit, you have to disconnect from the world. And I'm sure when Jack was shooting, it must be similar. He was focused and not think if you have any problem. And I think that's the type of exercise that the athlete that use a lot of the mind has to have. You have to be 100% focused. What you see, what you react, and your strategy for the race. Three channels together. Now you talk about your focus there. Um, let's talk about 1970. Um, the death of Jochen Rint at Monza. A very difficult time for everybody at Lotus. How difficult was it for you? Because you were only 24 at the time and with so little experience as well. Uh, was reality in Formula One was a big shock, a big trauma to me because it was going to be my fourth Grand Prix of Jochen as a teammate. Uh, it really showed me reality of Formula One at that time. Uh, because when you are very young, very enthusiastic, sometimes you don't think what ha can happen. And then I realized that it can happen to you, can happen to anybody. Uh, I would say the 60s were more dangerous than the 70s. But for me, it was a big trauma. And the end of 72, Colin Chapman come to me and say, Emerson, I'm getting so close to you, I'm afraid that I can lose one day. And that was another trauma to me. And that was reality of Formula One at that time. You have, but when you leave the pit, you have to be focused on giving yourself to the sport that we love. I know that was um, tough, but you cannot think what happened. And they have to go focus and, and go for the next situation. But few times I, I nearly stopped at that period of time was very difficult. 11 Formula One drivers died during your 10-year career. Um, how did you justify the risks in your mind? You know, we're fighting to improve the safety, leader by Jack Stewart and Joe Bonnier, Grand Prix Drive Association. I give 100% support of myself. We knew that we could improve safety, and there was... Uh, what you call a risk of the sports, but there was some risk that we should not accept, like a bad ankle barrier, not the right medical assistance, not the right rescue team on the track. We are fighting against these things and we're improving a lot. But the risk of driving fast, the race car exists all the time. You have to accept. 
sometimes when I leave home on Thursday, I was thinking, I'm going to be back Sunday or not. But when I arrived at the paddock, I was focused on going fast and trying my best that I could do it. But that seems to me, for someone who hasn't experienced that, me, it seems an extraordinary mindset. So when you arrived in a paddock, you just didn't think about it. Is that how you dealt with it? You have to disconnect and uh, the love, the passion for the sport. And, and there was a situation when I won Monza 72, the world championship, my first world championship. I, I, I live in Lausanne, in Switzerland. I drove, we had a big party Sunday night with all the Brazilians, you know, the friends, Jim Lotus, everybody. I drove home in the morning. I uh, had lunch in, in Lausanne with my father and my brother, and I told my father, I'm retired. They looked to me and said, you are retired? I said, yes, what else I want? I left Brazil uh, to be a Grand Prix driver. I'm a world champion, what else I want in life? And then my father looked to me because the risk, I want to retire. My father looked to me and said, I know you, you can take this decision now, but I guarantee a year from now, you're going to regret my son continue racing because you're going to regret your decision now. And he was right. But your father was a, for people who don't know, was a, was a motorsport journalist and passionate about racing. So was he being objective enough when he was saying that? He knew myself and he knew that I was, I was not going to live without racing, without driving. I was only 25 years old. At that time, you know, all the dramas that I went through from 97 to 72, there was a lot of dramas with friends that I lost. And then I said, why well, am I going to continue? I'm world champion. What else I want? And then my father gave the right advice to me. It was the right advice. 100%. 100%. Because I know if I would stop, I would be frustrated. Then I, would, I want to go back and race again. And I would go back. But then you have the gap that sometimes it's difficult to go back again in racing. It's very difficult. Well, because you had sacrificed a lot, hadn't you, coming over? Can you just describe what it was like getting off the plane in 1969? You'd never left Brazil prior to that point. Am I right? And you get off, is it like February 1969? We all know what the weather's like in England in February. What were you thinking as the plane arrived in, was it, was it Gatwick, Heathrow? Gatwick. Gatwick. I remember that I was looking England, it was very cloudy. And then I, I saw some holes, I saw the grass, I said, this is the ground of Graham Hill, Jim Clark, Jack Stewart, I'm coming to England. It was like a big commemoration in my heart. I was so motivated. And then I was counting every day and, and the uh, English Brazilian friend called Jerry Cunningham picked me up at the airport on the Mini Cooper. I never saw Mini Cooper in my life. <laughs> Drove to, to the hotel and next morning, First thing in the morning, we went to Snetston. When I arrived in Snetston, and I arrived very early in Snetston, all the uh, club racing, all the cars warming up because it was very cold. And I hear this engine, I said, I'm on Eagle's Nest. I'm here in England. I'm going to race here. It was a dream to be in England for me. It was, and Formula Ford at that time was the most economical way for any young driver from any part of the world to try to be competitive. And I had no idea how I was going to be compared to the European drivers, how I was going to position myself, if I was going to be competitive. It was like where I'm coming now, you know, looking everything around. It was a big, big, uh, I was very anxious to see my performance against the European drivers. I had no, no comparison. So was Jerry Cunningham the guy who looked after you? Because, because Emma, whose idea was it? No Brazilian had done what you'd just done. Where did this idea come from? Why didn't you just carry on racing Formula V in Brazil and, and have a happy life, good career in Brazil? What made you get on that plane and say, yes, I'm going to move 10,000 miles away from my family? First, England was uh, well known as the club meetings. Um, I mean, every weekend in England, we have so many races, so many racetracks. I think England is one of the most developed motor race country in the world. And Jerry Cunningham raced Formula Ford uh, two years before in Snatchton. 
And then he was my supply for the bodies, for the Formula V that I built and for the go-karts. He was a fiberglass supplier for me and the friends. I used to have lunch at the British club near the lake here. There's a British club. I used to go for lunch next to my go-kart factory, close to Interlagos here. And then uh, Tim Schenken from Australia arrive in England, start winning Formula Ford. I say, let me try to do what Tim Schenk is doing. And that's how I went to England. And the first meeting Monday morning was with Frank Williams and Jerry Cunningham. I was, I was, I hardly could speak English. And I had the album with all my racing history. I was Brazilian uh, go-kart champion. I was Brazilian Formula V champion. And Jerry was explaining Frank Williams and Frank Luke and said, is that motor race in Brazil? <laughs> How amazing that Frank was one of the first people you met when you were in England. Because I want to buy a Titan. The Titan was Tony Trimmer was winning everything with Titan. And then I said, let me. And then Frank said, I'm sorry, my, the car is going to take at least two months to be delivered. The next Titan, I sold out everything we have. Then we went to Merlin, and I, I walked to the Merlin shop the same afternoon with Jerry, and there was a yellow, like the Brazilian colors, sitting there. And then we met the people from Merlin, said, well, Emerson want to buy a Formula Ford. So said, well, the guy who's going to buy this car is not going to buy is yours. And, and then I just put a green stripe, and there was a Brazilian Merlin. <laughs> so look, then, You've already talked about your deal with Chapman to race in the British Grand Prix um, in 1997. Just describe that moment of lining up at Brands Hatch. I think you were alongside Graham Hill on the grid. Have I, made, have I got that right? You, you were alongside Graham, weren't you? Um, emotions, how did it feel? You know, it's amazing with all the history of, you know, that grid they had, Jack Brabham, Jack Stewart, Graham Hill, York, and... Uh, Pedro Rodriguez, um, Brab, and Danny Hume. Uh, I was looking the grid. I said, "I'm here. That's my dream." And then next to me was Graham. I, I could die next day. I would, be, I would die very happy because I did my dream. That was my dream to be a Grand Prix driver. Uh, I was very emotional. It was tremendous pressure being Lotus, but I knew Brands Hatch well because I raced many times with Formula Ford and Formula 3. I love Brands Hatch. I feel comfortable with the track. And I knew that the first race I had to finish. I could not do any stupid mistake. Uh, Even if I was not driving 110%, I was very conservative. And not, you know, the little boy did a mistake there. You cannot do a mistake. First race in Formula 1. And then the second race in Hockenheim, I was abusing more. I was breaking late, locking wheels, trying to get the 49, running strong, and I finished fourth. It was a very strong finish for the Lotus 49. And I remember after the race, Colin come to me and say, Emerson, you, you are world champion material. After you your second win. race? After my second race, Colin Hockenheim, because the way I run the 49, Colin come and say, you can win the World Championship, Emerson. So, I mean, listen that from, from Colin. I used to call him Mr. Chapman and say, no, 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 Emerson, call Colin, please, not Mr. Chapman. How long did you call him Mr. Chapman? <laughs> well, I started the first time I went to the office in, uh, in Norwich. And uh, when I sit down in front of Colin, my legs are shaking. <laughs> this is Mr. Chapman in front of me. And he said, Emerson, call me. And then I start. Uh, after the test in Silverstone, my first Formula 1 test, I started calling. calling. You seem to have an amazing knowledge of Formula 1 back then. As you say, you've, you've listed all the, the drivers you wanted to line up alongside on the grid. How did you watch Formula 1 back in Brazil? Was it being televised at the time? or was it? How, how did you keep in touch with the motor race, the European motor racing world? Uh, at the airport, Congonhas Airport downtown, they had all the international magazines for racing uh, in, in one newspaper place. And I used to go every month and buy. 
my father was complaining because it cost a lot of money to <laughs> import magazines. And, but I, that's the way I follow up, only magazines. Sometimes some documentary films we had from Indianapolis and from Formula One. I used to watch documentary. They, they had a club in, in Sao Paulo called Auto Club. There was uh, enthusiast of racing. My father was a member. And every Saturday afternoon, late afternoon, we did like a movie section from Formula One and from India documentaries, you know, the big role. Yeah, a very noisy machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. That's how I started love Grand Prix racing and Indy. I used to watch a lot of documentaries because of Bardal Brazil bring from America uh, from the mid-50s. I was 10 years old. I remember uh, Bill Vukovic. I mean, the, the traditional uh, racing families from America. And, then, and, always, and when I joined Lotus... I asked Colin, how was to win Indianapolis with Jimmy? And, and I keep asking about Jimmy, but Colin never wants to talk about Jimmy. Really? He, oh, he was the best driver for, for Colin because he, uh, I'm sure when he lost Jimmy, it was a big impact in Colin. And Colin, a lot of people had the wrong image of Colin. Colin, he could be, a, he looks like a cold technical guy but he had incredible heart. And when he likes a driver, I mean, he, he come to me and say, I'm getting very close to you. I don't want to get more close. I mean, he suffered. Every driver he lost it, a lot. What made Colin so good? He was a genius. He had in, uh, intuition, mm -hmm. uh, reaction to the problem. He knew, I, like we went out for dinner, after practice, and he said, Emerson, describe what the car is doing on every corner. And then you'd put the two fingers, start sinking, go back to the garage, change the car, next day the car was fast. He, he, I was lucky to work with Colin. He was a genius. He was a genius, and he was incredible. Advanced ideas of technology, of aerodynamic, mainly because of his background from aircraft. Uh, and he was always very good to me, always, always. Did you ever and work? Hazel Chapman, too. Sure, sure. But did, did, did you ever work with an engineer as good as Colin ever again? No. No, he was fantastic. You I had many good engineers, but he was fantastic. You were talking about Indianapolis, and, and you were trying to speak to, to Colin about, you know, what it was like to, to go there with Jimmy. Did you ever ask him to race at Indy with him? No, because I was focused in Formula One. I had that time no idea to race in Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. I, I was very interested to hear what, how I was in Indianapolis. And it was funny because like Jochen tried, he did a test in Indianapolis, he crashed, and Jochen and told me, that's a shit place. Jochen <laughs> said that. Yes. And Colin, Colin said, I like to be in Indianapolis. It was very challenged technically because you only turn to the left and you can imagine how Colin was superior to set up Jimmy's car in Indianapolis in four corners. It must be 110% of the car. <laughs> but you're a shit place. <laughs> or you love it or you hate Indianapolis. Yeah. Now, let's, let's fast forward to the end of 73 and you make the decision to leave Lotus. You've already described the impact that Colin had on you and your career. Why did you leave? Big decision. Well, it was a big decision, and at one point, sometimes people disappoint you and call him because of different interesting. In Monza, 1973, I still had the mathematic chance to win the championship from, from uh, Jackie. I was still in dispute with Jackie. And then Ronnie started in front, I was second, and we had the debriefing before the race. And Just quickly say, Ronnie was your teammate that year, my wasn't he? My teammate, Just who was in, my best friend in Formula One, and was a fantastic driver. Mm -hmm. Ronnie was a spectacular driver. I mean, uh, sometimes behind Ronnie doing Woodcourt Silverstone was incredible to watch both, but Ronnie more sided than me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. I just wanted to explain to the listeners. So you're at Monza in 73. Oh, my God. So and then uh, we do the debrief and calling. Say, if you guys run away from the third, 
and Ronnie is leading Emerson second. Um, we are going to give a sign, 15 laps to go, 14 laps to go, 13 laps to go, um, and you have to change position. And still Emerson can win the championship, can have a chance to win the championship. And comes, no sign, no sign, no sign. I'm right on Ronnie's gearbox, and then I, I have to race Ronnie. And then we start dicing wheel to wheel. I finish with my nose right on Ron's gearbox. And then I was very disappointed with the race strategy. And I decide, time to leave. I'm going to another team. How did Colin explain that after the race? Well, he didn't explain. <laughs> did you ask him? Did oh, you yeah, confront him? Say, well, Emerson, you know, I don't know if the third was close, but we are, we are far away. And we could change position. And I was very disappointed. That was the decisive moment, was it? Yes. Okay. And then um, I was looking for different teams. And then Philip Morris approached. I, I live in Lausanne. And Philip Morris at that time was with uh, BRM. And they approached me and said, Emerson, you choose the team. It was a very difficult decision. I said, but come on, guy, we go together. I said, no, it's your decision. You choose what you want. To, for Philip Morris, go with you for Formula One. And then was a, we, I had three fantastic options. That, that's good when you have three fantastic options. Tiro, where Jack retired. Brabham, Bernie, was extremely competitive. And McLaren. The reason I went to McLaren, because McLaren was a very young team, young people. Most of them from New Zealand. Uh, they had a fantastic car. Teddy Mayer was a very good, good organizer of a team. It was a very small team, but I went there, I really liked it. I said, we go to McLaren. I know Bernie was disappointed with me, Cantillo was disappointed because we had a long conversation. Did <laughs> Bernie teams. still remind you of that today? Yeah, Bernie, like <laughs> for many years, he never forgot. <laughs> well, it wasn't a bad it was decision. Just Emerson was a Philip Morris together, we can yeah. imagine for a team. Yeah. And that's what happened to McLaren, then there was uh, we had a fantastic team in McLaren. It was everybody very enthusiastic. Um, uh, How good was that M23? Uh, fast corner was an unbelievable car, better than the Lotus on fast corners, but was not consistent as the Lotus 72 from track to track. We had to work a lot on suspension uh, with uh, springs, dampers, geometries. But McLaren was very good on making new suspension. Uh, Gordo Kopuk was the engineer for McLaren. And he was always like, the turning point 74 was Brands Hatch. I tested in Brands Hatch, the car was not good. And then uh, I, I told the team we have to change the geometry because over the bumps, we are losing grip in the back end. The, the tires are not staying on the ground the way it should stay. They designed, developed a new geometry, put on the Grand Prix, and was a big change to the end of the season, won the championship. But, but the last race, people ask, can you sleep well before a Grand Prix? Including all my Grand Prix, everything I race in Indianapolis, I never have so much pressure. Watkins Glen, same points at Clay, equal points to the last race. Then it was between myself and Clay, the car was not very good in qualifying. And guess who was next to me? Clay on the Ferrari. I mean, I slept only three and a half hours. Well, I, you know, I had butterflies on my stomach. I said, I cannot lose this championship. And then on the grid, I looked to Clay. Clay didn't want to look to me. The mechanics, you know, the, the, the Ferrari mechanics looking to McLaren like... Yeah. Who's going to be the world champion? I mean, incredible pressure. Never had in my life a pressure like that. Wow. And the, and the story ended well. You know, interesting thing Jackie said when I spoke to him on Beyond the Grid was Regazzoni was the only driver who ever weaved in front of him. It was at the Nürburgring. What was Clay like with you on track? Well, uh, it's... In I that never, sort of situation at the Glen in 74, when there's so much at stake, were you nervous never, that he... Yes, I never had... Uh, Clay was a great friend, but I never have a confidence to dice, like I told you with Jackie, wheel to wheel, because he would put you in a difficult position. 
uh, he would he would use your space, mm-hmm. and I think he forgot that if he use my space, there is a solid object next to him. Sometimes he didn't realize there was a solid object. Mm-hmm. And on, when they start the race in Watkins Glen, um, going uphill, he was ahead of me. Uh, we intentionally put a very little wing on the car to be faster than McLaren on the straight. And I draft him, I sleep streaming him. And uh, as I was passing on the inside, at the end of the, co- the straight would be a right corner. I was getting the right line. When, when my nose was the mid of the Ferrari, he threw my car into the grass. And then I say, if it doesn't, we are going to crash. And I immediately, I react, was my instinct. Because sometimes your instinct is faster and quicker than your, you can control yourself. And my instinct, I turned the steering wheel I nearly hit the Ferrari on the side pod. He, he, he got like surprised. He took away the car and I passed him. And then I, next corner, I, I, I took ahead of him and uh, I won the, the world championship. And after the race, I was very upset with Clay. I was going to talk to Clay. And then I say, thanks God, I won the world championship. Why well, I'm going to complain to Clay? He's going to remember forever what happened on the street. I never talked to Clay about that. And uh, was a was a situation do, doing or dying on the street. And I I react against him, and it was a good instinct I had. But Clay was always very risky, but was an incredible friend, very nice outside of the cockpit, very difficult inside the cockpit. Not to say something else. <laughs> okay. Emma, can we just let's just press pause there because you've just won your second world championship. Can you give us a snapshot of what it was like to be Emerson Fittipaldi at that time? You had the everything going for you, didn't you? You you were the best racing driver in the world. You had the sideburns going on. Yeah. Just what was it like? Just early 70s, you had the world at your feet. Imagine you were having an amazing time. You know, was uh, everything was so glamorous, so uh, commemoration, winning the second world championship, and we called the hippie time sideburns, bell bottoms. Uh, was were you a hippie? No, I was not a hippie, <laughs> but I think some of the drivers dressed like a hippie. You know, and was a new fashion for the world, and I was so motivated to be part of that history, to be part of that era. That was a fantastic new era. Uh, and very happy to win with McLaren. Because for me, it was a challenge. It was my decision to go to McLaren. And then when I won, was I was twice happy because I did the right decision choosing McLaren as well. Sort of justified your decision. Justify my decision. Yeah. Uh, everybody McLaren was very, very happy because it's first world championship. They had a big uh, shock trauma when they lost Bruce in Goodwood with the Cannon car. You'd only just arrived in England at that time. Had you ever met Bruce? No. I never met Bruce. Okay. I saw him racing in, I think, 1969 race of champions in Brands Hatch. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember it was raining and uh, there was a line to get autograph from Graham Hill. I went to the line. But the line was too long, and he had to go to the track, and I lost uh, Graham Hill's autograph. And I saw Bruce for the first time on the paddock in Brands Hatch. Mm. I was just, I was going to start racing Formula Ford. Mm. But you met some cool people at the time. George Harrison became a, a good friend, didn't he? Um, anyone else? Just You know, through, through the sport, you know, it's, it's a fantastic... I think not just motor race, but any international sport, you can meet so many good people and make friends international. And I think I'm, I'm so grateful for the sport that I travel all over the world, incredible cities, new different cultures, meeting good people, successful people that were there. And, and uh, as for sure, being one of 
the millions and millions of fans from the Beatles when George come to to, to my garage in Brands Hatch in 1972 talk to me. I said, this is George Harrison. And, and he was incredible uh, racing fans because of uh, his background in Liverpool at the entry. Of course. And uh, I don't know if many people know, but his father was a bus driver from the public bus transportation in Liverpool. Sunday morning, the day of the Grand Prix, he picked up all the family, including George, and wanted to see the British Grand Prix entry, uh, stealing moss with the Mercedes, Fangio. He told me all the story because I asked, how you like racing, George? And, and it was incredible. It was before myself started liking George, like racing. Yeah. He liked racing before music because he was watching Grand Prix before he started playing guitar. And that was incredible. And George was an incredible friend of motor race. He was friends of Jack Stewart, of everybody. He loves racing. And, and like I met uh, uh, David Neven, who people don't remember now, but... <laughs> Have you ever, ever read his book, The Moon's a Bloom? No. He's written a brilliant, oh, yeah, he wrote a brilliant book, but yeah, David Neven, wow. And yeah. he, he used to go on Monarch and stay on my pit always, like three years in a row. And um, he had a beautiful house in, in, in Saint-Jean-Cap-Ferrat. And then before the Grand Prix, after the Grand Prix, we had dinner at his house. He was incredible. He, he was, to me, the, a real British gentleman, David Neven. And he was, uh, I mean, one of the people who I met that was celebrity and was very nice was David Neven as well, George David Neven, so many other people. And I'm so grateful, you know, for Motor Race, for God to have this experience. I'm a person with a lot of faith, and I think God opened so many doors for my career. I only can, you know, thank God, my family, to be in this fantastic sport. If we just go back to, to, to the racing now, 75, you're still absolutely at the top of your game. Can you talk us through the decision to do Kopasuka with your brother, Wilson? How, how did it come about? And, you know, it obviously didn't go as well as you'd hoped. Did you ever get offers from other teams to go back to the front of the grid? Or why did you stick with it? Well, you were uh, trying to do a Brabham. You were talking, uh, I was, was end of 75. My brother already drove one year. We started the team because we always like to build the cars from, you know, I, I used to tune my motorcycle in, in Brazil. I, we built our own go-karts, Formula View. You had the prototype. We said, why not to, be a, to do a Brazilian team? And we started the Brazilian team. And then the end of 75, sometimes the heart, the motion goes beyond the analytics. And it's, it's difficult to separate when you love and you have a passion. So I'm going to do my own team. I know it's going to be tough the first two or three years. I knew it was going to be tough, but I didn't know it was going to be as tough as it was. I was expecting it to be easy, but it was very difficult. We had very good people in the beginning. Um, at that time, any time, if you build a Formula One team, you need at least three, four years to get the best people behind you. Because it's like someone wants to build a new Formula One team today, how can you go on the paddock and start hiring people? Everybody who is experienced and doing well is committed with a contract. And then you start picking up people as much as you can in two, three years. That was a very tough situation. But the last year, we had the best team, 1980. We had uh, Harvey Postwaite as the chief engineer, and Adrian knew it as our uh, junior engineer. <laughs> Aerodynamist. Uh, we, I had Peter War, who was my team manager from Lotus. And it was a, sometimes life presents you surprise that you don't expect. We had the best team because a Formula One team is made by the people behind. And that doesn't matter the name of the team. If you have the right people, the team is going to succeed and the right sponsorship. And in July, we were running with Skoll, but the Brazilian media, not the media for motor race, the newspaper, they are making joke with us. The Brazilian team is not going to go forward, it's not going to succeed. I lost Copersuka sponsorship because of that. 
And then I had the skull, I skull Brazil, that was owned by a Canadian group and the Brazilian group. And they really motivate to sponsor. And then I had Kak Rosberg as teammate. I mean, it was a very strong team. In July, you had the, the brand new car designed by Harvey and Adrian. It was a fantastic car. First Grand Prix, uh, Kek qualified fourth, and I think it was fifth or sixth, Hockenheim. We, we didn't do a lot of tests. And next week, the PR from Skoll called me and said, Emerson, I'm sorry to tell you, but the board, because of all the critics from the Brazilian press, uh, we, we don't justify to carry on the team. We have to back off. And then, then I called Peter War, I called Kek, I said, Sorry, guys, you cannot continue. It was very disappointed for me because it was a dream to have a Formula One team to succeed, but it didn't happen the way you expect. It was a big effort. I had the fantastic people together. I mean, very enthusiastic people working. It was a great team. On the best, we lost the major sponsor. We could not carry on. Mm. But I, you know, I, I enjoy, I had a good memory second on the Brazilian Grand Prix, 1978 was a big commemoration in Brazil. The Brazilian team finished second with Brazilian driver in Brazil, but was not, was not justified with the Brazilian media, not the people who understand motor race. Would, you have to accept crits on your life, we accept. Mm -hmm. They are very good, constructive critics like uh, Galvão Bueno, who is broadcast for Global. You know, but it was tough, tough year for us. And, and did all of that criticism just suck your enthusiasm for Formula One out of you? Is that why you retired? You just, it wasn't a case of trying to go back to the front of the grid with a different team. You just wanted to, you'd had enough. Well, you're only by, 33. By, by coincidence, that year, was, my opinion, the worst year of the full ground effect car. I hate to drive the full ground effect car because as fast you go into the corner, you, you multiply your downforce. And then you have to be brave enough to realize how much fast you can go. But when you lose the car sideways, which is if like the skirt would hit the curb on the inside, and open the gap, you lose completely the downforce, you go, I mean, sideways into the fence like you don't believe. And that was, I said, this is not correct. You, it's not the art of driving, but you have to have big balls, much more than a normal driver should have. Made for Alan Jones, you could say, <laughs> couldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to, on the grid, I asked the mechanics, can you tie up my balls with the belts, please? <laughs> so, but, so it was the cars that sucked the enthusiasm out of you, yes. not so much now. The, the, uh, and then uh, they start changing the rules, and then was already out of Formula One. Mm. But you didn't, uh, Emerson, you didn't drive anything as I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but you didn't, we certainly didn't race anything for what, four years after that? Yeah. How did you fill your time having? I went back to Brazil, uh, here in Interlagos, go-kart track. We, we made a category called Supercart. Twin engines, 125, twin engines was 250. No clutch, no gearbox. I was like a little beast to drive. <laughs> so you were still driving, <laughs> And you? then... Yeah. With my friends that I started racing go-karts, with the top Brazilian drivers that time in different categories, I was having so much fun to drive again. Uh, it was dangerous, it was crazy. We're getting uh, in kilometers 160, 170 on street circuits with you know, 250 straight gear, but it was fun. Myself, my brother, Wilson, started driving Ingo, Ingo Hoffman, a lot of, yes, we all start driving, you know, supercar to call. Yeah. And then Ralph Sanchez called me to race the Miami Grand Prix in prototype and say, Ralph, I'm retired. I'm not going to go back to race. Forget it. And then he insists. I went to Miami uh, and was a March Chevrolet on the streets of Miami. And when I start driving the car on official practice, this is, I still have to do this. And I put the car on pole. Your first race back? 
my first race back in the prototype. I, I never ri- like to race a, pr- a sports car prototype. I always like Formula much more. Why was that? I don't know. My feeling always to Formula, always like Formula prototype. I never, to me, was not the real thing. The real thing is the Formula to me. Since I was a little, you know, dreaming to be a Grand Prix driver, but I enjoyed the car. And then Monday morning, a guy called Pepe Romero called me and said, I'm putting together an indie team. Do you want to come to Indianapolis and drive? I say, why not? Not so much pressure. It was already carbon fiber because I test in 1974 Jonas Rutherford McLaren Indianapolis. I like it. Where did you do the test? After Watkins Glen winning the World Championship, I flew down on the Gulf Stream from Philip Morris. They wanted me to race next year in Indianapolis. And uh, the car was incredible balance. It was Offenhaus engine. Johnny was there. AJ Foyt was there. AJ Foyt was so good, took me on the golf car on every corner. And we were watching Bobby answer test. Which track was this? Indianapolis. That's Indy. Indy. That's Indy. Indy. Oh, wow. And AJ said, Emerson, jump here with me on the golf car. I asked I ask AJ what I have to do and what I have not to do in Indy. Because... To give an example, when you sideways, if you go sideways in Janaps, you turn the steering wheel in. You don't correct. Because that's what Nelson Piquet did, wasn't it? Deep yeah. on the wall. Yeah. 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 But I never could do that. But it was fantastic. I had an incredible welcome from the Indy drivers there. You know, AJ, Mario was very good to me. We raced Formula One together, many years together. Mario Andretti was always a great friend and... Were you quick? And then I drove the, because I always like fast corner. I like Indianapolis. Turn one and two in, here in Interlagos, the old one was very similar to Indianapolis one and two. And they're always very quick here. Of course, it was banked, wasn't it? And yeah. very similar design as one and two Indianapolis. And then I, I feel home driving Indianapolis. I feel good. You, against Jochen, who says shit place. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But I decided not to drive because at that time uh, we were, I was doing average speed 210, 212 already. And the car was aluminum, three millimeters aluminum monocoque. It dis- disintegrated. And then it was going to be a Texco star. The, the Texco approached, they were sponsoring me with McLaren. They want to make a white car next year, Texas. They thank you very much. I'm not coming to the apps on these cars. I wait 10 years and there was a carbon fiber. Then that was there. the tipping point for you, yes. the carbon. Well, the increase in safety. 10 years later, just mm. when I went back to Indianapolis, it was carbon fiber. Yeah. And then I say, okay, carbon fiber, I'm much better protected. Mm. And then I saved my life in, Indiana, in uh, Michigan Speedway. Well, of course, that was your career ending yes. shunt, wasn't it? You were what, nearly 50? I was I was going to I was uh, the crash was in July in December I was going to be fifty yeah I was nearly nineteen ninety six. How do your two indie victories stack up with all your other achievements? Indianapolis as one day event is fantastic because of the whole history of Indianapolis, mm. the tradition. The, that time there was the two weeks before the qualifying, tremendous pressure. Colin used to tell me how I was to race in Indianapolis. And, but the good side, because I always very technical, I love Indianapolis because you, you do a few laps, take the car to the garage, measure the whole car, change a little bit, mm. half degree caster, a little more tilt, mm. And then go back again at four corners. They look the same, but they're never the same. And there's so much effort to get the car right for four corners only. And then to win is fantastic. Yeah. And 500 miles race is a long, long race. I mean, yeah. it's sometimes it's three and a half hours. Yeah. Focus, a lot of speed, a lot of adrenaline. Mm-hmm. It looks boring on TV, but to a driver, is one of the most exciting experiences of my life to drive in Indianapolis. How impressed were you by Alonso when he went there? I, I talked today to Fernando because I, five minutes before the race, I was talking to him, he was relaxed. And I told today, Fernando, Fernando did a fantastic job in Indianapolis. Very, 
very impressive. Because not only he was leading, but for people to understand the turbulence in Indianapolis, the draft, uh, to manage that, you have to learn, learn. And, and uh, Fernando went first year, he was already there uh, with a different experience. Formula One is not the same. Indianapolis, you, when you're behind three cars, the effect is different. Behind two cars is different. Behind one car is different. It depends the distance you are from the car ahead. There's a lot of ifs and buts that change the circumstance. And he was dominating. Very, and he says he's going to race again next year. I'll yeah. be there. <laughs> okay. Sure. Now, there's another. So Alonso did a good job. Of course, Senna in December 92 tested your car, didn't he? At the Firebird, your Indy car at the Firebird Raceway. Yeah. Um, just your memories of that day. How impressive was Senna? Well, it's, you know, it's a little story because I told... Ayrton, you have to try my car. You have to race in Indianapolis next year. But why did you... Dinner in Sao Paulo. In, why did you say uh, that? November. Because Nigel was looking to go to India. I said, can you imagine I started the Indy 500? Nigel Manson and Ayrton Senna. I mean, it would be incredible. And then Ayrton said, okay. I Over dinner. to test. Yes, Over dinner. Yes. And then I called Roger. Say, Roger. That's Roger Penske, of course. I said, Roger, Ayrton, accept to test the car. Invite him. Can you arrange the test? Roger said, sure. On the road circuit, but not on the oval. On the oval, he can have a crash. Because I was testing three days on the on the road circuit in Phoenix, and then on the oval. Uh, actually, it was a very small road circuit, um, very short, dirty, a lot of dust, not many people using but was, I stayed the whole week with Ayrton. It was a fantastic experience. I was a very good friend of Ayrton since he started racing karting here with his so, family, so, his father. So did he stay for the whole test? Did yes. he watch you on the oval as yes, well? Yes, he went there. He stayed three days watching. And um, How quick was he on the road course? Very quick. He was very quick and he loved the car. He was a very positive impression about the car. Uh, there was a different image of Indy cars, the people from Formula One. And when he drove the car, said, this car is great to drive. I love it. And he was considering to go to Indianapolis. And then he stayed the three days of testing. We stayed together in the hotel there. And one day I'm coming out of Phoenix. Uh, it's a very aggressive drive in the short oval because we lap in 90 seconds a lap and a very high average speed, a lot of downforce in the car. And I mean, you come out of the corner two inches from the wall, the outside wheels. And I'm coming out of turn two. I see a little head, you know, sticking out. I say, who is this crazy guy? You know, just the turbulence there. And it was Ayrton. He drove the golf car and he, I say, you are crazy to be there. Can you he said, Emerson, the turbulence, the noise, go close to the wall. He, he watched. Coming out of I say, Ayrton, don't go there, please. Can't imagine if I do a stupid mistake and, and hit Senna on the outside wall coming out of turn two. Oh, I'd regret for the rest of my life. Now, Emerson, do you think he was serious about IndyCar or was he just winding Ron Dennis up about a contract for the next year? No, he wanted to drive in Janaps because right. he knew my story. I, every time I won Janaps, he called me. Um, he follow up. I mean, we talk. He, sometimes he comes to Miami, stay with me. And he, he likes Indianapolis, for sure. He want to race in Indianapolis. He'd like to race in Indianapolis. And then when Ron realized it was serious, he banned Ayrton. But Ayrton really won. Roger was ready to put the third car for him. Roger said, I put a car for, for Ayrton. Wow. It would be fantastic yeah. to have Ayrton on the team. I know I knew it was going to be fast. You think he would have been? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be fast. But Ayrton's styling, aggressive. Uh, he would have to go what I call the American procedure, step by step to get the speed, to get used to. But I know with his uh, talent, you'd control the situation. How generous would you have been as a teammate? Would you have told him all your secrets or just some of them? No, I, I, I think uh, 
to have Ayrton on, on my team would be so fantastic. I would be so motivated, so happy. Um, you would have shared everything. I would share and at Penske would look all the setup of the car and they would give all the advices like AJ give to me, like Mario give to me because, you know, in Indianapolis, if you do a mistake, it could be only one mistake and never again. Mm-hmm. You know, you have, it's not forgiven in Indianapolis. You know, if you do a bad mistake, Ayrton knew about the risk of racing. That's why he watched put his head coming out of turn twice. A little head there. That's crazy. <laughs> Who's this crazy guy, you know? But he would like to race in the Naps, for sure. God, it would have been amazing, wouldn't it? But of course, it all came to a very horrible end in Imola 94, didn't it? And, and you were a pallbearer at his funeral. How tough was that whole experience for you, given that you knew the family so well, you knew him so well? You know, it was uh, incredible. I was testing Michigan Speedway for Indianapolis. I was running full tanks. And then Chuck, who was the team manager, said, Emerson, your family is on the phone. Pete, Pete. And uh, I mean, I was doing a full tank run, Sunday. Had you ever been called in like that in your career? No, never. When you say your family, I said some something serious happened to my family. Then I went down, I stopped immediately. And then my wife say, Ayrton just died. I was shocked. I had, we stopped, I went home. And it was a big shock because Ayrton to me was immortal. You know, was someone who, who could not die driving a race car. Get there. Even now. used to watch my Formula One test in Terlagos. He and Milton, his father. I was testing Cooper Sucker, he finished testing cards, he came here to watch me. As a small boy? He was 14, 15 years old. Mm. It happened. Do you think he... I mean, please tell me to stop, but just that whole funeral... I mean, Sao Paulo came to a stop, didn't it? And, and You know, to me, never to happen to Ayrton. It was not just to happen to him. Yeah. You know, with my relationship since he was watching my test with Copper Sucre, he interlocks. He always come late afternoon. When he finished go-kart testing, I call his father Milton. Milton, big Milton, is called Milton in Portuguese. Ian Milton come to my pit. Ayrton watched, he was very shy. He never asked a lot of things. He always, I, I always went to him to talk and he asked, how was the test, how was this? And then uh, in 1982, 81, we were racing. I had still the Formula One team and I told Ayrton, Ayrton, come with me after practice. I introduced all the, all the Formula One uh, teams. He said, Ayrton said, a world champion material. And some people... You said that? Yes, yeah, with Ayrton. Ayrton was very shy. Here at Interlagos? No, 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 in Zeltwek. Um, oh, that was Zeltwek, so you came to... And I, I pick up Ayrton, Ayrton, come with me. Go, I went to Tiro, I went to all the team managers, to the Ferrari team. So was he racing at Zeltwek that weekend? For, Formula Ford, European okay. Formula Ford. It was the two liters Formula Ford. And had you... And he was le- winning everything. Yeah, yeah. And I... Anyway, when I used to come to my office to go to Europe with his father in Sao Paulo, I called Ralph Furman, who was my first mechanic in Formula 3. I say, Ralph, I have someone who's going to win the championship for you. And Ralph loved, send me to England. And I said, I used to, and he won everything. So he came, so Milton, have I pronounced that right? Milton? Milton. Milton. Uh, but Milton and, and Ayrton. Ayrton. They, came to your office and yes, said, yes. what do we do? And yes. you you pointed them towards I call, Ralph Furman. I called Ralph with Ayrton. And England. And yes, Ralph Furman. I called Ralph and said, Ayrton, Ralph will be the best guy for you to race from La Ford in Europe. He was my mechanic. I knew Ralph. And Jim Russell had no, had no team anymore. He had the school. Jim Russell raced driving school. But Ralph was Van Diemen already. He was doing his own sure. car. Just to go back to that Phoenix test, because of the history you had with him and the family, to actually be sharing a car with him, was that, that must have been... No, it was incredible. Was it one of the highlights oh, for yes. you? It was incredible. Just to share a car with Ed. And, so. and I, I, we stayed together many days. 
Ayrton, come on my plane from Miami. I had a Learjet at the time. We flew together my plane. Then I took, I took him back to Miami. Uh, we stayed the whole week together. It was not just driving, but sharing things at that time, you know. Just, it was incredible. And I remember Ayrton was very complaining about the, the, the media, was criticizing him because the deal. And he was, and I said, listen, Ayrton, if you start reading the media, some guys always criticize you. Don't read anymore. Go to the paddock and drive faster race car, forget it, and bring the results. And that's, that's motor race. Because uh, one time in my life, I started looking. When you start looking, because for sure, nobody's perfect. You're always going to have people criticizing you. And then it, it reflects on your mental uh, health for a driver takes the 100% focus because it disturbs you mentally. And I say, Ayrton, don't, because you will say, well, this guy wrote this, I don't know. And, and you know in Formula One, if you start answering, mm. and then never stop. And then something's coming back to you. And I think it helped a lot, Ayrton, mm. not to. Was that personal experience for you after the Kopasuka criticisms and from the media? And, yeah. yeah, yeah, so... Okay. I think any any athlete, not just motor race, but you have to be so focused on the sport to succeed that if you start looking and think about how someone's going to criticize you, it's a problem. Yeah, takes the focus from the sport, takes your your motivation mm. in one way, and you have to be 100. percent But that's. It's, Fantastic sport. Well, look, let's just let's end just by bringing it up up to date. How much would you like? How much would you like to be driving one of these cars today here into Lagos, Brazil? I would love to test a modern Grand Prix car. I think the technology is so advanced. I was looking the, just the last practice and the speed and the way they approach the corner. How late the break, how fast they, they run into the corner is fantastic. And I, I like new technology. I had lunch with Ross Brown in England in July, and I know they're working a new rule to, to make more even for the teams to give a chance for young talents that sometimes are very talented but don't have the right car, the right team, and cannot show the talent. And it's difficult now, and, and I hope the, the near future will be more balanced with the new rules mm. and will give chance to young talents from all over the world to have the same dream I had to be a Grand Prix driver. Well, who is the next Brazilian hot shoe? Well, uh, Pietro we... <laughs> announced yes to Haas to be the reserve test driver. Yeah. Uh, Pietro's history in racing, everything that he started, he won the championship, including the NASCAR when he was only 14, 15 years old in Charlotte. He won the local championship. Uh, he's very determined, a lot of talent. Um, he's very good technically to the team. He gives a lot of information. I think the team like that. I think when they experience Pietro on the track, they're going to be surprised uh, how good he is in all the aspects, motivation, information, fast. Uh, Pietro is always a racer. He's always grows. On, when the flags drop, the bullshit stop. And he's a racer. Like his grandfather. Well, I hope he's better than grandfather. <laughs> he can't be better than his grandfather. He's got a great teacher. Can be, no. So you think, so Pierre, I mean, Pietro, how old is he now? He's 23. Yeah. But still, good age, good age because he's uh, he's very fit. Uh, he's a young lion. He's dreamed to be a Formula One driver. Now he's uh, very motivated. He had a very difficult year when he crashed in Spa. He was very dismotivated. He, I used when I see him, he was being treated in Indianapolis, and he said, "Grandpa, I finish my chance to be a Formula One driver." I said, "Pietro, never even don't say that word anymore. I don't want to hear that anymore from you. You never. You have to be optimistic. You know you have talent. You can recover from your crash, and 
I was racing in Phoenix with Emo, kart racing, nine o'clock in the morning is Phoenix. 8.30, it was warm up. And uh, I knew already by Peter's crash, was the same day, Peter's crash in Spa, the prototype, oh, Rouge, was a horrible crash. And then uh, first call, Gunther from Haas, how Pietro is doing? I told Pietro, I said, Pietro, they like you. Gunther was the first call I had on the phone, just Gunther immediately. Steiner. wow. Yes. Mm. He called my phone and said, how Pietro is doing? And I said, Pietro, you, you know, people like you, Gunther likes you, Hans likes you. You're, you're born in America, he's American, you know, Brazilian America, but he's born in America. And uh, I said, I'm sure you have a good chance, opportunity. Ah, grandpa. But, he, he, you know, to have the fracture head in tibia, to have the ankle nearly smash, external fracture, they did a fantastic job at the hospital in, in Spa in Belgium. Jean Todd was there. I mean, and then Terry Trummer, who is our specialist in Indianapolis, loved the work they'd done in Europe. He was very lucky mm -hmm. to have a good uh, treatment from the beginning. Now he's full recovery. Isn't it an extraordinary thing that he had that accident, broke those legs, and yet you, okay, up until the Michigan crash, but in Formula One anyway, did you break any bones in your body? I'm just trying to think, did you, was there a thumb maybe? Or did I read somewhere there was a thumb? I want to catch fence in Paul Ricard because I did the stupidity. I raced in Riverside. Next day I had the test in Paul Ricard. I flew the whole night. And I should listen the good advice from the good people. And after 10 laps, I lost the McLaren. I hit the catch fence, broke my finger. On the, on the fence, on the steering wheel. And then I, 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 I had a huge crash in, in Holland, 973. Zandvoort, yeah. Zandvoort, but was just um, ligaments for my foot. Um, actually, Graham Hill took me out of the car and Joe Ramirez took half an hour to get me out of the car. Okay. Graham Hill stopped his car. This doesn't happen now, but it was fantastic. Graham stopped because he knew I could not get out. I was, I was stuck inside the car. The car was full of fuel, and Graham Hill and Joe Ramirez took half an hour cutting the front of the Lotus for me to get out. That's an amazing story. It was, uh, was thanks to Graham and Joe Ramirez. But isn't it amazing that you only you, you got through so unscathed, really? But listen, we could talk all day, but Emerson, thank you so much. No, it's great, your time. great interview. Thank you, and uh, I love this sport. I love the people who follow up the sport. If Formula One's every year is getting better and better and better. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. So much emotion still about Ayrton Senna. But so much passion for Formula One as well. And I loved getting his thoughts on Colin Chapman, Jochen Rindt, Jackie Stewart and Bruce McLaren. Emo really is one of the sports legends. Thanks for your time. It was great to catch up. Well, that's it for another week, but we'll be back very soon with another F1 superstar. In the meantime, if you haven't already, please subscribe to Beyond the Grid. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app. And please keep getting in touch because we love your feedback. Here's a quick shout out to Richard Thompson, who enjoyed last week's episode with Carlos Sainz. And he couldn't believe Carlos was doing Scandinavian flicks at the age of two. Well, Richard, some people are born to do it. If you'd like to drop us a line and potentially get a shout out from yours truly, use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid and you can tweet me at Tom Clarkson F1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out.